From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Jim Elvich, my guest, for the full two hours, he is standing by to delve into digital consciousness theory. Digital consciousness is the title of his latest book. We'll kick around the idea of whether we are living in a simulated reality. Think the movie The Matrix, a computer simulation. Uh, Before that, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Flying V Gibson guitar. Our fine rockabilly friend, my technical producer, Ian Robertson. On the Rickenbacker bass guitar, and occasionally the theremin, my story producer, the very idiosyncratic, mysterious Albert Vinzel. And on the Hammond B3 live stream and YouTube channel producer, Ryan. Uh, Incidentally, no live YouTube stream tonight. The live YouTube streams will resume in January 2019. And incidentally, we have renamed the YouTube channel. It's now called Strange Planet, after the website. So the YouTube channel is now Strange Planet, and you'll not only find all episodes of The Conspiracy Show there, but we're also including my podcasts, Conspiracy Unlimited and The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. So again, the YouTube channel now called Strange Planet, and please check it out. Don't forget to like, share, and hit that red sub button. We're trying to get to 15,000 subs as fast as we can. All right, hold on to your hats. We're about to explore a theory that may just explain the greatest mysteries known to man in one fell swoop. Who is God? What happens after we die? What the heck is quantum entanglement? Why did Dolly's braces disappear in the movie Moonraker? For all you James Bond fans out there, our reality is not what it appears to be. The latest physics experiments demonstrate that an objective reality doesn't exist, and no one truly knows what consciousness is or where the mind resides. Strange interconnectedness, anomalous events, and changing histories confound even the most open-minded of scientists. No single theory seems to be able to explain it all until now. Author Jim Elvidge holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Cornell University. He has applied his training in the high-tech world as a leader in technology and enterprise management, including many years in executive roles for various companies, entrepreneurial ventures, and leadership consulting. Beyond the high-tech realm, Jim has years of experience as a science researcher, keeping pace with the latest in the varied fields of quantum physics, cosmology, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and metaphysical anomalies. This unique knowledge provides the foundation for his critically acclaimed 2008 book, The Universe Solved, which, for the first time, presented the astounding evidence that our reality may be under programmed control. And now, nearly ten years later, scientists, technologists, and futurists all over the world are jumping on the simulation bandwagon, speculating that our reality is a digital simulation. Jim's research and theory, however, has continued well beyond the simulation hypothesis and incorporated powerful ideas around consciousness, cultural synchronicities, quantum anomalies, and a true scientific foundation for digital consciousness theory. This true theory of everything is presented in his second book and highly anticipated 
Digital Consciousness. Jim Elvidge, climb on aboard. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm great. Thank you very much, Richard. Now, this idea of living in a computer simulation, a digital reality, uh, you're always quick to point out this is not your theory. In fact, I mean, this goes back hundreds of years, I think even as far back as René Descartes. How could someone like Descartes living in the, in, during the Renaissance be thinking about things like a simulated reality? Oh, sure. I mean, this goes back further than that, thousands of years. You know, Plato's allegory of the cave and Eastern cultures, the concept of Maya, that reality is an illusion. So this is not a new idea that our reality is illusory in some way. It's just that now people have taken the current computer aspect of our society and applied it in a different way. So I think Einstein once said there's maybe five new ideas every century or something like that. And, you know, this is another one where, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here. There have been people who have been talking about all of these kinds of things for many, many years. And I think one of the areas where, you know, I might have added some clarity to it is the ability to connect the dots and to say, you know what, if we look at all of these strange experiences, these scientific experiments that don't make sense, these anomalous occurrences and things like that. Maybe there's a thread there, and that thread does seem to be that our reality is virtual and it's digital, and our consciousness is separate from the brain. So if you put all those things together, you come to a conclusion that is really, really powerful in terms of how well it can explain things. So just take us back to your first book, The Universe Solved, and you explore different categories of evidence that our reality is virtual and programmatic, I think is the term you use. So let's just delve into to some evidence that this reality is a simulation, and then we'll talk about what that actually means. There are a lot of places that we can look. So one thing to think about is if there is something like a simulation, it would imply that there's something programmatic underneath that. It's hard to imagine a simulation in a continuous world that isn't driven by some sort of logic in in a bigger system. So if you have that, if you accept that idea, then what you need to look for is whether or not there's evidence that deep down our reality is digital. And there's a great deal of evidence for that, in fact. There's no evidence that it's continuous other than it just seems to look that way. One example is in the scientific world. Physics breaks down at a certain point. So We don't see, for example, uh, Hawking radiation or other kinds of frequencies, high-energy neutrinos above a certain level. And when there's a formula in physics where a frequency of something is inversely proportional to its wavelength, and the wavelength is going to have to do with, you know, sort of the granularity of reality and how atoms are moving about or subatomic particles or whatever the constituents of reality are, the level that they're moving about is going to be inversely proportional to the frequency. So if the frequency has a limit and we don't see anything above that limit, that tells you that there has to be a limit to the discreteness of reality. So what does that mean? Okay, so it's discrete. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's programmatic. But then when you look at things like quantum entanglement or uh, the observer effect in a lot of quantum experiments, It's hard to come up with any kind of solution that explains those without the idea that there's a programmatic nature to reality. So just as one example, I like to use this one because I think it kind of clarifies things pretty well. Imagine you're playing in a uh, virtual reality video game and you come across 
a building, and the building has a door, but it has no windows. It has no way to get into the door. There's a keyhole, but you don't have a key. Does the system, the system being that game construct itself, does it have to create what's inside the building? No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to decorate it. It doesn't have to paint the walls. It doesn't have to do anything until somebody finds that key and opens the door. Right. It's, fact, like, a, it it's have, like a Potemkin really... village. It's like a Potemkin village. <laughs> There's just a storefront you can't see inside, so there is no inside. Sure, and, and it would be inefficient for it to do so because you don't know if anybody's ever going to discover that key. We don't know if anybody's going to cut into a tree or examine the contents of a cup of coffee under a microscope. So what that means is if you're building a simulation to simulate a reality in this way, you're going to do it in an efficient way, which means that you're going to dynamically create the reality as it's needed. And that's exactly what seems to be happening in quantum experiments. It's only when people look and try to determine the position of something or some attribute of that thing that it actually comes into existence. So reality seems to behave exactly the way we would create a simulation. So in other words, the idea that the observer changes the behavior of that thing that is being observed, that is evidence of a digital simulation? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, there's a kind of a fine point there that some people are talking about today. So it could be the conscious observer that the reality gets sort of, um, you know, clarified for, or it could be the fact that we need to have consistency in that experiment. So, for example, if there's a recording of the position of photons or something like that in an experiment, then just the very nature that the experiment is recording that forces it to come into existence even without a conscious entity looking at it. So that idea of the observer effect is a little soft right now. People aren't really sure whether it means a conscious observer or whether it means that the system has to be kind of self-consistent. On the other hand, some people talk about the idea of panpsychism, that consciousness is in everything. So maybe it's a moot point, if that's the case, that consciousness is everywhere. So that is what is causing reality to come into existence. All right, Jim. Stay put. We'll reconnoiter on the other side. Digital consciousness. Jim Elvidge. Are we living in a computer simulation? Back with more. My name is Richard Serrett. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Jim Elvidge is with us. The book is Digital Consciousness. Are we living in the Matrix? So when I think about dreaming... Jim, that's a type of simulation. How does that differ than what you're talking about? Or does yeah, it? That's good. Yeah, good question. So, you know, there's one thing about sort of our apparent view of reality. We sort of feel like we're in this physical world and that when we dream, we drop into a different level, right? And I believe that that isn't quite the case. I think that the deeper, more fundamental reality is a place where you can experience all kinds of things. So when you go into a dream state, you may be in that reality. For example, the difference between a dream and the physical reality, then, is the level of consensus. Essentially, in a dream, you're kind of brainstorming. You're thinking about things in a sort of a fantasy way. Your mind can go or your consciousness can go wherever it wants. But in the physical reality... It can't quite because it's constrained by the rules of our physical reality, the physics engine and, and the fact that other people are observing the same thing. 
So there's a difference in the reality that we appear to live in, and I believe that that is the simulation of sorts that is within the bigger system. That simulation uh, makes us feel like we're in a hard and fast physical reality, and the reason it does that is so that we take our learning seriously. I mean, imagine if we learned something from a dream or we had an experience with a dream. We'd wake up and say, huh, it was just a dream. You know, I'm not going to take that seriously, right? But when you experience something, you know, an interpersonal interaction or a lesson you've learned or something like that in the apparent physical reality, you do take it seriously. Why do we take that seriously? Why do we think that's realer than a dream? I think it's because there's this level of consensus that other people experience pretty much the same thing we do, even though deep down we're all just having a subjective experience. All we're doing is taking data in and processing it and interpreting it in different ways. And this has been shown in many experiments that people remember things differently, they see things differently. So really what we know we're having is a subjective experience. It's just that it's so close consensus, it feels real. All right. Fundamentally, really, the only difference between uh, dreams and apparent physical reality. All right, so there are roughly 7.6 billion cognitive souls on this planet. So consciousness, 7.5 billion conscious souls. What is consciousness then? Because if you can't simulate consciousness, then how could we be living in a simulated reality? Or is consciousness simulated? Yeah, and, and this is where we get into semantics, Richard. The idea of consciousness, somebody may argue with something because of what they believe the word consciousness means. And it's actually very difficult to describe some of these things without pictures or without a, uh, a model to look at. And that's one of the things that I tried to do in the book is make a very clear model that makes it, it obvious what we're talking about when we talk about the reality learning lab or the apparent virtual reality that we're in and, you know, the deeper system, all that there is and where our consciousness resides and things like that. So there's kind of a model for that. So I like to think of it this way. Think of all that exists being a big cloud of information. That big cloud of information, that's some physical construct that is outside of our understanding. You know, when scientists look into a microscope or an electron microscope and they probe deeper in matter, they're only doing that in this this one, um, you know, aspect of the program of the bigger system that has these rules to it. Outside of that, we have no idea what the reality is actually like. So, um, you know, what's going on there? Well, I think that that whole system is just a big mass of consciousness. And all we are is like a sub-cloud or a, a sub-piece of it. You have your piece. I have my piece. And 7.6 billion people have a piece of that consciousness, which kind of explains why the mystics and, you know, ancient religions and spiritualism ha- have often said we're all part of a whole, and yet we're individual as well. Um, that's perfectly aligned with this model. So it's not just 7.6 billion instances of consciousness because there's dogs and cats and mosquitoes and gnats and all these other things that uh, scientists are slowly coming to the realization that, yes, dolphins are conscious. Yes, uh, big apes are conscious. Yes, canines are conscious. You know, in fact, pretty much everything that's living is conscious. Actually, everything that's living, plant life is conscious. And, you know, it goes on and on. Um, now, the 
sort of, you know, if you can kind of imagine, visualize the size of the cloud may be related to the level of consciousness that you have. So a gnat may have a very tiny little cloud that's sort of filling in the spaces in the bigger system. Um, so, so yeah, in that sense, we're all connected. And, and we are connected from that cloud of individuated consciousness to this reality learning lab, this virtual system that we're in that we call life. Um, but when we disconnect from that, i.e. when we die, we go back to the original place and then we reincarnate. And that's another aspect of this theory that, that I you know, tend to believe in because there's um, actual and a lot of strong anecdotal evidence for reincarnation. You know, people who have experienced past lives and can identify things in those lives that they later on go and find uh, actually exist or, you know, individuals who uh, had lived previously. Well, that so, certainly makes yeah, sense because in most video games, you know, we all have numerous lives, right? You can be right, uh, right. You're given so many lives. But back to consciousness for a moment and the idea of um, cognition, there is this theory that it is computational, Um you know that I guess. Well, now we're talking about artificial artificial intelligence, and and uh, everything would be uh, reduced to an algorithm, an incredibly complex, infinitely complex algorithm. Um, I mean, well, how do you feel about this idea of computational consciousness? That it's just if if we're digital, we're a series of ones and zeros. Why couldn't consciousness be an algorithm? Well, it is an algorithm. I mean, if you think about what an algorithm is, it's, it's uh, a logic flow, essentially. So our brains do work that way, and our consciousness appears to work that way. We go, if, then, else. You know, if, if this happens, I'm going to do that, or whatever. So we build up our uh, the rules of our algorithm over the experiences of our lives. We learn how to, you know, not touch a hot stove, for example. Um, so it is algorithmic, but the, the real fundamental question i think is where is free will in this right right it's you know you could say okay well what's the difference then between an ai and a human that's also you know the ai is also following an algorithm and i think there's a fundamental difference there the ai is part of this virtual reality learning lab that we're in that we have constructed um but the fundamental consciousness that you and i have is actually out there at a different level so the question might be, you know, kind of an interesting question is, could our consciousness, since our consciousness apparently can occupy a template, a, you know, a human template in a reincarnated way, every incarnation we pick a different human template, if, if our consciousness can do that, could it occupy an AI if the AI is sufficiently conscious? And I think it's possible. I, you know, I, I don't, uh, off the top of my head, I wouldn't say no, but the important thing is sufficiently um, uh, complex or sufficiently, uh, you know, have a sufficient substrate for us to be able to make use of that um, in in the way that we would need to, and we're certainly not there yet. So, you know, the interesting thing too is if that ever happens, if if a consciousness that has previously, say, incarnated into uh, humans or animals or whatever, decides at some point, okay, I'm going to occupy this very advanced AI that. Uh, Microsoft has created uh, 20 years from now, um, the computer scientists will say, aha, see, we told you, sentience came out of this this AI, but that isn't really the case. 
Right, right. I mean, this would be the, this is the transhumanist's wet dream, right? The idea of resleeving your consciousness so that you could be immortal. Right, and 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 their thinking is grounded in the idea that we live in this deterministic, materialistic world that you know that that the real reality is what you know we apparently see um, that it's physical and that. Um, you know, as our algorithms become, uh, you know, more and more substantial, then we can sort of upload our consciousness into it. Uh, you know, I have a feeling that it's not going to be so simple. You know, it's it's up to our real consciousness to decide whether it wants to get uploaded. You know what I mean? So I, I, I don't think that, you know, anybody who tries to do that experiment is going to have good results. But there is the possibility that it could happen, I think, um, far enough in the future, only because it, it would have to be, uh, far enough in the future that we would have sufficiently complex systems that it would make sense for us to occupy as a consciousness. You, you Does mentioned, that make sense? Uh, yes, yes, and that <laughs> frightens me. <laughs> but the idea you mentioned spiritualism, and and I like to think of myself as, and many listeners, no doubt, too spiritual, uh, if not religious. And uh, this is my own bias. I mean, I'm an I'm an, an analog guy, and I know my young technical producer Ian. You know, he just brought in a couple of vintage old 1940 uh, 40s era Bakelite radios, which I I just I was drooling over. They're fabulous. I'm an analog guy. I like vinyl. When I think of you know the digital world, I think of ones and zeros, and it it seems sterile to me. So reconcile. Uh, maybe I'm the one that needs to reconcile it, but just, where is the room for spirituality in this digital sort of on-off holographic universe? Yeah, uh, we could probably spend uh, the rest of the evening talking about that question because that's, that's sort of the fundamental question. Um, it's a good one. And, and I love the analog stuff too. I like vinyl. I like um, old uh, analog radios. And, you know, the thing to remember here is we have always thought that reality was discrete in some way. You know, the ancient Greeks talked about, you know, the idea of an atom. You know, it was indivisible. So atoms are a discrete unit that can't be broken down any further. So in that sense, you know, an, an atom can be thought of as a digital thing. If it's there, it's a one. If it's not, it's a zero. You know, how does it behave? It behaves according some, to some rules that are quant, uh, quantized. They found in the early 1900s that uh, particles behave in a very quantized fashion, so that still feels real digital. And yet, the analog radios came out after the advent of quantum mechanics. So deep down, we're talking about a construct that's um, that's probably not continuous because it would, you know, it, it require infinities, which is, you know, a, a ridiculous notion at its core. Um, but we don't notice that. I mean, you can have beauty in a rose and beauty in a movie and, and beauty in a thought and beauty in falling in love, all those kinds of things, and yet still have a discrete reality deep down. There's n- no conflict there. So we only think of ones and zeros as cold because we think of that laptop on our desk, you know, processing data in that way. But I'm talking about, you know, a much, much deeper level of this. And we really can't tell the difference um, until, you know, other than the categories of evidence that I'm talking about. In the... So where does this... Yeah, so, so I'm sorry uh, to go, interrupt. Yes, no, you go. a question about where does spiritualism come in? So uh, the idea of, you know, going somewhere when we die, um, having a purpose in life, that's not uh, in conflict with the idea of a 
digital reality deep down at all. In fact, it's it's uh, supported by that. Uh, you know, the, the fact that you could play out a simulation, you could learn from that simulation um, and then do another one uh, is very much in keeping with the idea of uh, reincarnation or uh, or an afterlife and, and those kinds of things. So it's it's not a conflict if you think about it in that way. It's just that, you know, the word digital, the idea of ones and zeros, it does seem cold and impersonal. Um, but when you think about it further, we do have layers of reality that are apparently analog and then discrete under that and analog and discrete under that. And what we see at the surface seems to be continuous. And that's really all that matters to our subjective experience. So this digital consciousness theory, uh, you, you believe that that this is really the theory of everything. It can explain everything, all known scientific, metaphysical anomalies, what we call the paranormal, what we discuss on this program. All that can fit neatly into the DCT box. Is that right? Yeah, I, I do believe so. In fact, um, you know, I'm constantly coming uh, across interesting experiments or papers that are written. Uh, whoops, sorry about the noise. Um, <laughs> Is someone breaking in, Jim? Do we, do we need to call the authorities? No, everything, everything's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I came across one uh, today where there was a study of multiple personality disorder. And uh, some there was a case, there are a number of cases where the uh, person who has a personality that is a blind person, they found that their visual cortex actually turns off. So it's sort of uh, inactive during the time that that personality is in their their body, if you will. Now, this doesn't make any sense. You know, how could, how could a brain flip back and forth between um, having the visual cortex turned on and being, you know, one normal personality, and then suddenly, like, deciding to turn it off. You know, nobody can consciously turn off their visual cortex. I'd never even thought so, of that. Right. But, and yet, that's perfectly explained by the digital consciousness idea, of thinking of, you know, these individuated consciousnesses out there, separate from our body, and for some reason, they're time-slicing the use of the body. Don't know why, can't explain that, but this is a perfect mechanism for explaining how that happens. All right, when we come back, we need to discuss who or what is programming this digital simulation. Jim Elvidge here discussing digital consciousness for the full two hours. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Do not go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. And we will open up the phone lines at the top of the hour. Questions and comments for Jim Elvidge. Digital consciousness, his latest. Um, so let's talk about who is behind or what is behind uh, the simulation. Who or what is programming it? I mean, a, a religious person would say, well, that's an easy one. We see intelligent design everywhere. It's it's God or some super consciousness, some super intelligence. What's the big whoop? What say yeah, you? Uh, oh, sure, go ahead. Sorry, Richard. No, no, I'm just going to say, so So, what are your thoughts on, on who, who's, who's programming it? Yeah, and, and this is actually one of the areas where the my new book, my recent book, uh, has gone a lot further than the original book. Uh, and when we hear 
uh, probably a lot of your listeners have read something uh, about the simulation theory. A lot of popular periodicals now have had articles about it. Are we living in a simulation? Uh, Elon Musk has even kind of jumped on that one. And, right. Nick Bostrom. Uh, a lot of, yep, a lot of Nick Bostrom, a lot of different scientists and so forth. And their view of the simulation theory is that we are the ones that are creating the simulation and we've done it in the future. So we've reached some post-human stage where we have these sufficiently advanced systems uh, and we go, we're going back and doing an ancestor simulation and we, we live in one of those. That's, that's what that sort of traditional simulation theory is. But the problem with that, and this is where I think the power of my idea and the power of this book has come in is I'm, I've, I've looked at all of these different ideas, Eastern philosophy, Abrahamic religions, uh, simulation theory, a la the Bostrom type, you know, other kinds of sort of theories of ev- everything, if you will, and ask the question, how many of these different anomalies do those things explain? And that simulation theory where we are the creators of the simulation, they don't explain things like near-death experiences, spiritual experiences, uh, precognition, or even some quantum mechanical experiments like the d- delayed choice quantum eraser. So you need something more than that. And that's why I've, I've gone beyond the idea of it's us in the future creating this or it's some other, uh, you know, agent, some intelligent agent, you know, a, a, a physics hacker from another universe or something like that. Um, those things just don't explain these other anomalies. The digital consciousness theory explains those. And what it is is the bigger system that is all consciousness, I call it all that there is, it's self-evolving. So it's driven by um, sort of a process of continuous improvement. It's trying things, experimenting with them, and not doing it in any kind of maybe even well-thought-out way. Um, It's, you know, you think of a, a system that, when it tries something and it evolves in a positive way, it keeps going in that way. If it evolves in a negative way, it tries something different, and it continues in that in that loop, essentially. So it could be that, that the system, and it appears to be that, you know, the system is doing this. Now, it's still possible that there's a higher-level construct, but it's beyond the human consciousness construct that could have, uh, you know, created all this. So, for example, Abrahamic religions do make some sense out of a near-death experience and a spiritual experience, but they don't really have anything to say about precognition or why a delayed-choice quantum eraser appears to be, you know, backdating some data. Um, however, the digital consciousness theory explains that really well. It okay. has to backdate it because reality is being, you know, generated. In Wait a minute, I got I got to circle back here. Quantum eraser. I love that. When you talk about a quantum eraser, are you talking about the Mandela effect where I remember? No. This, this, no? Yeah, this is a different one. We, and we should definitely talk about the Mandela effect too because that's a, that's a great one that I include in the book. Okay, so what but pray tell is a quantum, quantum eraser? Yeah, that, that was a, it was a thought experiment uh, put forth, I think, by John Wheeler a long time ago, maybe 70s or 80s. Um, and we didn't have the, to actually run the experiment until more recently, uh, within the past 20 years. So um, what it does is, uh, if you're familiar with the double-slit experiment, there's yes. a, uh, a light beam that's split into two paths, and they, uh, they go to, through two different slits. And then there's a screen on the other side where um, 
if the if the uh, you know if the there's no way to tell which slit each photon goes through, you'll see an interference pattern. Um, but once you put a detector there to tell, okay, this photon went you know through slit A versus slit B, then that interference pattern disappears. And this has been a big mystery for many years. You know, how does it know? Um, this what you know led to what's called the observer effect. Right, and sometimes so, it behaves as a as a as a wave, and sometimes it's a particle. Yeah, exactly. Depending exactly. on and, how it's being observed. And, yep, and and so some people have speculated, oh well, it has to do with you know the problem of the detector. The detector is getting in the way of this. So Wheeler's idea was, well, what if we put the detector? We we have a way to detect which path or which slit the photon went through after. It hits the screen, so we we don't actually even try to figure out which slit it went through. We learn that after the the pattern is generated, and still it follows the rule that once we realize, once we put that detector there after the screen, um, we it it uh, collapses the wave function and, it, and the interference pattern goes away. So it's almost like um, you know the pattern that you see on the screen. The, the state of it, whether it's an interference pattern or not an interference pattern, depends on something that happens later on. So it's a very, it's, it's a very counterintuitive thing. It's a, almost a non-causal idea. Uh, something that happens later is influencing something in the past. So that's, that's the delayed choice quantum eraser experiment. I forget when the first one was done, but um, each time that this experiment has been done, uh, the there are a number of loopholes that people are worried about, like, well, maybe uh, maybe there's some, uh, you know, some leakage, or maybe there's some communication that's less than the speed of light or something like that. And one by one, they've been closing these loopholes, and I think it was about three years ago that all of these loopholes were closed simultaneously, so it's now impossible to have any other explanation for this other than the fact that there is something uh, retrocausal, you know, uh, precognitive almost about uh, about this experiment. So that old saying the, that past is prologue is really true. Yeah, exactly. What does that mean about and, the nature and, of time in a, in a digital uh, universe? Uh, well, there's two ways to look at time. There's the time that we experience in our virtual reality that seems to kind of, you know, clock on, you know, chunk after chunk. Um, and then there's this uh, time in the... Uh, you know, the deeper reality where, you know, people who have had near-death experiences or out-of-body or past lives or whatever, um, they report timelessness. I'm sure you've heard of this, this idea that there doesn't appear to be time. And I think, you know, and this is a little bit of speculation, certainly, um, but it but it appears like what's going on there is that when you're in that space, you're able to sort of run these simulations. Your consciousness is able to do several things at once, and so time disappears. Time is a construct of our virtual reality that we live in. Just the way the sync rate on your uh, laptop screen is a construct of that computer or the sync rate on a, on a TV, um, that's driven by the time in that system. So our apparent, what we call our apparent physical reality, it has the, the notion of time, but there's something funny about it. As, as we look deeper and deeper, we find out that that time isn't perfect. Things like this delayed choice quantum eraser or, you know, precognition um, 
skills that some people actually seem to have tell us there's something different about time, that it's not, you know, exactly clocking along deterministically, cause and effect the way we think it is. Uh, we can speculate about why that is, and, and that's, you know, really an interesting kind of philosophical area, um, but the science is showing that there is something, definitely something different than the, uh, you know, traditional view of time, for sure. Well, those of us who remember, you know, watching uh, videos, our VHS or our Betamax uh, players, and you would have to, you know, in real time, you would have to fast forward through a scene to get to the next scene, but in the digital universe... Again, linear, there is no linear time unless you choose to play something in linear time. You can access any moment on the DVD instantaneously. Uh, so is that what, is that really what the underlying this illusion of linear time? Is that what, what time is really like? There is no past, present, and future? So, and I, and I think that's the deeper reality that we're talking about, that you are able to access different things you're able to say play out different simulations you've probably heard of people who have had these experiences where they're uh driving along and they have this um you know this sudden strong feeling that they shouldn't make a right turn and they make a and they don't make a right turn and you know a train goes by you know they would would have uh, gotten to an accident with or you know you know what i mean something like that um the skeptical view of this is oh well there's some subconscious uh, data that they're receiving, you know, they're hearing a sound or they see something out of the corner of their eye or whatever. But there have been enough cases where. That Sorry, Jim. I got my apologies. I ran over time there. I, I've got to. Uh, sure. I've got to take a quick time out. We'll come back. I'm just so engrossed in this conversation, Ian. It's not my fault. We'll be back. More of the conspiracy show. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Jim Elvidge is with us for the full two hours. We will open up the phone lines at the top of, of the hour and take your questions and comments as we discuss living in a digital simulation. Um, now, where to go to next? Uh, oh, we were sort of in the midst of uh, a discussion, and I got so sort of carried away. I ran over uh, the, uh, the the break time, but we um, what were we discussing now? Um, yeah, we, we were talking about the idea of uh, sort of um, looking ahead or running your own simulation. Right, and, right. Uh, it, you know, I, I was, it, it reminded me of these cases where people have a real strong precognitive feeling about something. Like in some cases, it, it, it you know, it's impossible to say, oh, they had some, you know, uh, sensory input that gave them an indication that this was going to happen. If you look at it logically, it's it, it just impossible. And yet, these things do happen. So what could be going on here? Well, it's possible that your consciousness is playing a, you know, a little simulation game. You say, well, what happens if I drive down this road? What happens if I leave a minute later? What happens if this? And, uh, you know, based on that simulation, and, and that simulation being sort of tapping into, you know, what some people might call the Akashic record or whatever, um, you know, and running the simulations, it may make a decision to do something. And that decision is, is the, the the system telling you wait, put on the brakes, or do something different? Um, so it, it it explains that. No, nothing else can really explain that that effect. But this idea of you know being able to run these kind of parallel simulations in a deeper reality does explain it very well. 
What about a glitch? Uh, I was watching uh, Cranford on DVD uh, last night, and I was right in the middle of a scene, and then all of a sudden, it skipped over a damaged area on the disc, and I thought, do I want to pop out the disc and rub some toothpaste on it? Because that does work, you know. You clean a DVD <laughs> with uh, some toothpaste, uh, often, especially when you borrow them from the library, they get scratched and so forth. But anyway, uh, why don't I, let's say, you know, in this simulation, there is a glitch. Uh, now, I'm not likely to see a pop-up ad. You are living in a simulation. Click here for more information. But, I mean, are there glitches? Are people noticing glitches? Does Are these glitches explaining certain paranormal phenomena? Right. Okay, good. Uh, so let's talk about, again, the two different levels of reality. So there's the virtual reality that we're living in, this apparent physical, what we call our waking reality. Um and could there be a glitch there? There could be, it, it, but I think that if there is, it's designed into the system. Um, is there a glitch in the deeper reality? Probably not, because I would think that the system having evolved to be, you know, fundamentally better and better over, over time, uh, is probably not going to, to have that kind of glitch. But the glitches that happen in our apparent physical reality, those are the ones that we care about because those are the ones that we experience. And something Mandela effect might be one of those, or some people, you know, point to deja vu as one. Um, so are they really glitches? Is it something going wrong? Well, you have to ask the question, what does it mean to be wrong? You know, maybe it's intentional. Maybe, you know, we're supposed to be able to uh, recall things you know, important things or even random things that we think we've experienced before for some reason. Um, or this, the Mandela effect couldn't, might be, might not be wrong. It might be the way the system is letting us know that a deeper reality exists. Right. Um, we just, should explain I'm definitely the... speculating here, but sure. you know, the, the, the theory, um, allows for these possibilities. But the question is, you know, what's the reason behind it? And that's pretty hard to answer. So we should just take a moment because I, I would like to drill down a little further on the Mandela effect because it's a fabulous topic. And, and that the idea is it's named after Nelson Mandela. And when he died, and of course, state funeral and everything, uh, uh, there were a lot of people, probably, I know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people around the world who said, wait a minute, Nelson Mandela died today? I remember three years ago or whatever the date was. I remember that. I remember him dying then. And then people started wondering about whether they were misremembering other things, like is it the Berenstein Bears? Is it spelled that popular children's cartoon? Is it mm-hmm. spelled one way or is it spelled the other way? Is it Oscar Meyer Wieners, M-E-Y-E-R, or is it M-A-Y-E-R? Uh, does the the F in Ford, as in the Ford Motor Company, have a little curly Q uh, or not? Uh, J.C. Penny, is it spelled with an E at the end before the Y and so on and so forth? Now people are wondering, wait a minute, I remember it one way, but everyone else remembers it another way. That's the Mandela effect. So the Mandela effect, you say, might be a way that the system is doing what exactly? Well, yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about these. So memories are known to be fallible. People... You know, people don't necessarily remember things the right way. I remember uh, taking a class at school where the professor was talking about an experiment he did. I mean, they would never do these today, but uh, he came into class and he had somebody come in with a gun that had blanks in it and shoot him, and he fell down. And, you know, of course, the, the student body just kind of went, you know, crazy. But, but before they ran out of the classroom, he said, wait. 
Um, now I want everybody to write down exactly what happened. And some people wrote down there was no gun. Some people wrote down the professor shot first. Some people wrote down, you know, somebody else came in or two people came in. And, and in fact, like under conditions of extreme stress, memories are terrible. In addition to which, when we remember something, we don't remember it as it originally occurred. It's impossible. What we remember is how it's been stored in our memory. So we remember the last time we remember it, ah, which right, means right. that if, uh, let's take, for example, one, one of your cases, um, let's take the Mandela effect, Nelson Mandela. If somebody heard something about Nelson Mandela having died in prison, then when they think about that, they may recall that experience, you know, the time that they heard about this. It could have been an erroneous news report or a rumor that somebody uh, sent around, and it could be kind of infectious in that way. So that's one possibility for it, and it's a very, uh, you know, mundane kind of uh, answer to this. Right, right. But then there's another one, like the Berenstein Bears, uh, that's certainly one, and the, the one that I like the best is, uh, you know, you've watched some of those old James Bond movies, right? Yes, yes. Moonraker. Uh, do you remember uh, Moonraker when uh, yeah. Jaws was in that movie? Mm-hmm. The villain, Richard right. Keel. That's right. Yeah, Richard Keel was the actor, and he had a big mouthful of metal, and he would bite people, and that was, you know, kind of his his uh, evil side. Well, in one scene in the movie, he crashes in a cable car, and then there's this blonde woman with pigtails who pulls him out of the rubble, and he looks at her, and she smiles, and she has a mouthful of braces, and he smiles, and he's got a mouthful of metal, and the two of them fall in love, and they walk off hand in hand, and the music swells, and all that kind of thing. Well. If you look at that movie now, you rent the DVD or download the, the movie, she doesn't have braces. Hmm. So how did people start remembering the braces? Did you remember her having braces? I remember her having braces, and most people that I talk to about it are almost certain that she had braces. And if in she fact, didn't, even, why did they make that connection in the movie? Right, uh, yeah, and that's my point about why this one's interesting is that why would they even have that scene in the movie? What's what's the whole point of that scene if there isn't some sort of connection between the two of them? And that was obviously what the connection was. So it, do, it doesn't even make any sense anymore. When you watch the movie now, you're like, well, I don't get why they're, you know, smiling at each other and <laughs> falling in love. Um, but then it, it made total sense. So that does feel like something changed. In the digital consciousness model, it could have changed. All those artifacts could have been rewritten, and we'd be none the wiser. Um, what's our memory, then? Our memory is uh, sort of, you think of it as a, a storage of things that we've experienced. It's possible that the other artifacts in our reality uh, were replaced or changed, but not the ones in our memory and think of that as like a little database that's over here somewhere and for some reason those don't get replaced and the others do it explains the the anomaly very clearly um but i can't tell you why that would happen um i i'm just thinking that maybe it seems like there are a lot of things that happen that that lead us to speculate about the deeper reality and it's almost like the system uh, the big, more fundamental system, you might want to call it God, all that there is, whatever, wants us to question, wants us to evolve, uh, wants us to think that we're not in a, you know, super deterministic reality where we're just kind of going along for the ride and don't have free will. You know, so 
it's important in our learning experience that we have mysteries to solve and things to to learn from and evolve from. And I think maybe that's all it is. Or is it possible, Jim, that it's all a clever deception? Not everything, but uh, who is ever responsible for the simulation? You know, the the idea, I, you know, that Alex Jones is, is sort of branded himself the uh, um, prison planet. That we are living on a prison planet, which is sort of the Gnostic version that, you know, we are trapped here on this prison planet. We are under the control of these, I I believe they call them archons. And once in a while, some avatar, Jesus, Buddha, whomever, appears to mankind and says, wake up, wake up. You're living in a simulation. This isn't real. Let me show you the path to truth. Maybe we can delve into that on the other side. Sure. Yeah, great. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. 